You are listening to 89.5 FM KOPN Columbia, Mid-Missouri's source for in-depth news, diverse talk and music of the world. It is so much more than radio. It is your community radio on the web at kopn.org. And this is Speaking of the Arts. Good morning and welcome to Speaking of the Arts, Mid-Missouri's only in-depth weekly art show. My name is Diana Moxon and I am so happy that you are listening. This week, I heard someone talk about some graffiti they had seen spray-painted on a sidewalk that read, Live This Life. Three words which I think sum up the incredible flexibility and creativity that every arts organisation I know is trying to live by. This life, this now, is what we are all dealing with. And despite its challenges, it is also offering all of us an opportunity to find new ways of living, of working, of creating, of growing. All around me, I see incredible work being done by people who, up until a few months ago, thought that Zoom was just a way to go faster. We're embracing the powerful technology that is at our fingertips in brand new ways, and my sense is that the creativity of this era is only just beginning. I don't believe there is the option of going back to any form of old normal. I think we've crossed the Rubicon And the future of the arts will look different. That isn't to say that components of the arts before COVID won't still be around, but how we experience the arts is going to have a raft of new options. Of course, none of that is to take away from the fact that the arts is a place where we meet to affirm what we share in common and that our cultural experiences are vital to the psychological health of the world. But we have to live this life, the life that the old normal gave way to. We don't just live in interesting times. We live in a time of vitality and change. So let's get on with the show and see how today's guests are embracing change. First stop today is Skylark Bookshop and its owner, Alex George. Well, it has been a few weeks since we last chatted with bookseller, author extraordinaire. So I'm delighted to welcome Alex George back to Speaking of the Arts. Welcome back, Alex. Hi, Diana. Nice to to be back. Well, since your latest novel, The Paris Hours, came out in May, I know you have been busy doing a book tour of the New World Order variety with a ton of online chats and appearances. And And I'm wondering, as this is your, gosh, what is it, sixth, seventh book, but you've done a lot of book tours, whether compared to your previous traditional book tours, what you've enjoyed the most about this new way of promoting your book? Well, the thing I've enjoyed most about it is the fact that I no longer have to go onto planes and go through airport security (laughs) and eat airline food and those sorts of things. I mean, I, I always enjoy going on tour. It's a wonderful privilege to be able to do it. But to be out for two weeks going around the country and having it going to a different city every day sounds very nice, but it's actually really quite hard work and not a lot of fun and you actually don't get to see that much of any particular place because you spend most of the day traveling and then in the evening you have to stand up in front of a bunch of strangers and, and try and 
be sparkling and interesting about your book. So it's 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 actually quite exhausting. So the nicest thing about it was to be able to still talk about the book, but being able to do so in my pajamas and from the comfort of my own home. Not that is to say that I'd like to do it again. Uh, <laughs> hopefully by the time, I mean I write so slowly. Who knows what will, be, what will have happened by the time my next book comes out? But hopefully by the next the next time, uh, it'll be we'll be back to the regular regular business again. But one of the great advantages of doing online events is that, well, there are two really. First of all, you can go anywhere. You know, I did. I think the week before last, I did an event in Southern California on one day. And then the next day I was in Connecticut. And the day after that, I was in Cape Cod. (laughs) So it's actually very easy from that point of view. And so it's a wonderful opportunity to get to talk to many, many more people. And of course, people can tune in. You don't have to be in Cape Cod to go to that. You could actually be (laughs) in Southern California. And, and, And so for an audience and for people who are hungry for these things, of course, the Internet takes down all of those geographical barriers that otherwise would have been there. So I think it's interesting and exciting to see how that's developing and how it actually is providing a, a larger potential for, for audiences, for authors. Do you think that the way people promote books going forward will be different? Are there new and exciting ways we can use the internet that we haven't previously thought of? I think so. And, and I think what's going to be very interesting is to see how things, when I'm going to say when, because I'm nothing if not an optimist, when life gets back to normal, it will be interesting to see what elements of the digital aspect of book promotion are preserved, even when the old model of getting onto those planes and going into bookstores is back with us again. My expectation will be that there will still be there, because people have discovered how convenient and easy it is, there will still be an online component now to any kind of book tour. And again, it's for those reasons that you can, it's just, it's very democratic in a way. You can, you can sort of go anywhere, but well, it'll just be interesting to see. And I think the other thing that we haven't yet quite worked out is really how to unleash the potential of the internet in the context of a book event. Most of the book events that are still going on are taking the traditional model of, a reading or a conversation and just sticking it online, which is fine and wonderful, but it's 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 not the same as being there, of course. But I do think that there is potential to do more. For example, an author could actually pick up their laptop and give people a tour of their bookshelves or of their library of where they work or things like that. So I think there's a lot of potential that hasn't quite yet been tapped into. One of the interesting things that we're, we're doing, I'm just talking about the geography of it all and something that we were having to learn is that it's no longer enough to say this is happening at seven o'clock. You have to specify which time zone you're in. And in fact, we are doing an event this week with an author in Australia. And uh, for us, it's seven o'clock on Thursday evening. But for her, it's actually going to be 10 o'clock on Friday morning. <laughs> Yeah, once you get into international time zones, it gets a lot more complicated. And you're really, when you're the other side of the world, it's actually a different day. It's not just a different time of the same day. And that does get a little complicated. But yeah, I mean, that means that you can talk to anybody anywhere in the world. You can be in Colombia one day and then in uh, Vladivostok. Absolutely. (laughs) Or wherever, five minutes later. Yeah, I'll be interested to see what new formats that we come up with, because it feels like... Right now, across all of the arts, we're trying to 
do what we used to do, but online, rather than thinking that this is a different kind of stage. And what are the formats that we could use for this new stage? As you've been giving your own book talks, and and also, I mean, I know you listen to a lot of other people's, what have you seen that has really stood out to you in terms of formatting that you've really liked? Well, for me, the thing that I'm sort of obsessed by at the moment is the sort of technical side of things and the different platforms that are available and how you can do it here, but you can post it somewhere else. So it's streaming somewhere else at the same time and all those kinds of things. So that's something that I'm sort of um, obsessing with at the moment, just because the purpose is obviously to get this out to as many people as possible. And so just trying to work out how to do that. I mean, I think that I mean, I've done a number of these things on a number of different formats, and each one is slightly different. I still don't think that anyone has quite worked out how to generate the immediacy of everybody being in a room together. And I think also part of the problem with that is, of course, that a lot of people these days are spending all day in Zoom meetings Mm. anyway. And so actually the last thing they want to do is to sit down in the evening and watch 16 little squares on their computer (laughs) uh, with people waving at them. So it's hard. I think there's a degree of fatigue that's already setting in with this. So I don't know. I mean, I I think that one of the keys is going to be when we learn and work out how best to harness this is the interactivity of it all and the potential for that. And having the audience play a more engaged role in the thing, I think, would be would be really, really interesting. But as I say, we're still we're still working it out. Mm. Do you think book sales have suffered or been enhanced by? I mean, let's talk about your book sales. Do you think they've suffered or been enhanced by launching in a pandemic? I mean, people have a lot more time to read, and none of us have a much of a social life any longer. So, do you feel like book reading, and in your specific case, has gone up or book acquisition? Well, you're right that people do have more time to read. I mean, it's it's almost impossible to tell of course exactly what what would have happened because you know every book is different and the issue that i have being somebody who owns a bookstore is that you know we haven't opened our doors to the public since since march and we have all of these beautiful books and we're still selling them and we're mailing them out and people can come in if they book an appointment but it's not the same as having people just wandering in off the street and browsing and picking up a book and going, oh, this looks good, and uh, having a discussion about it and then buying it. So book sales overall, I think, are down. There's a lot of data that comes out about all of this sort of thing. But I think right now that's the case. And, and you know, it makes sense just simply because uh, it's it's just more of an effort to buy a book now than it used to be because you, you can't just wander in and get it. And money is tight for a lot of people too, I suppose. A lot of people aren't working. Absolutely. And that, that that's right. And that's just going to get worse, too, I think, as the, the long term effects, the economic downturn really starts to bite. I think that's very much going to be going to be an issue, too. So besides promoting your book and dealing with running a business in a whole new way, you have come up with a whole new project, Must Read TV, which you launched, I think, last week. So tell us what that is. Yeah. So, I mean, we were just trying to to work out. I mean, we spent the first several months of the pandemic really just trying to work out how on earth we were going to operate. And you know, we, it required a huge sort of reconception of what the business looked like. And you know, suddenly we became a mail order business. But one of the things that we were desperate to do was to get back to the model of providing unique 
experiences for our customers. And ordinarily, of course, we used to do that by inviting authors into the shop who would sit down and talk and sign books and sell books and, and have conversations. Obviously, we can't do that right now, but we wanted to see what we could do instead. And so we've begun to do these online events. And um, we have been working very hard at basically it's a more sort of formal program almost than anything that we did in the past. And so once a week, usually on Thursdays, but not always, we have an online event and we have managed to, I'm happy to say, get some of the most exciting titles of the late summer and fall. And those authors are coming to talk to us. So we're very excited about that. And, um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be interesting. I mean, it, it's you know, you're asking about book sales. I mean, one of the challenges is working out how we can encourage people to not just turn in and listen to the conversation, but also buy the book as well, because, you know, the authors, their book has just come out and obviously they're, they're keen to see sales. And so that's been an interesting challenge, because when you're in the bookstore, it's very easy. You just turn around, you've listened to an author talk, you've been utterly charmed and dazzled by them. So you turn around, pick up a book and then walk to the till and buy it. Not so easy anymore. So and so we have to do some different things. And one of the things that we have been thinking about and we, we've actually put into practice and it's been quite a lot of fun. We were having a conversation in the shop about well, what can we offer? What can we offer our customers that, that would be completely unique? And we were going, we, we need to ask the authors just to, to give us something. <laughs> and we said, what, well, what could we ask them to do? And I said, I, mean, I don't know, something like a haiku. And there was a pause. And then we sort of thought, well, that's actually not the worst idea in the world. <laughs> and so what we've done now is every author who is coming, we've asked them to write a haiku which we're calling Skykus. <laughs> Perfect. So, and everyone's been, everyone that we've spoken to so far has been completely on board. I think we've got three back so far. And of course, they're brilliant. They're all very, very good. And somebody actually sent a painting as well that they had done. And so what we're doing, we're having a very limited number of these and we're going to print these, these Skyku out. We're going to have each one signed by the author and numbered. We're going to do probably 25 each time. And if you are one of the first 25 people to order the book, then in addition to getting a signed first edition, you're also going to get this Skyku, uh, which is signed and numbered. And, you know, we, we don't really know if it's going to work, but it's fun. And uh, it's it's the, the authors have enjoyed it. They've they've um, thought it was it was a fun idea. So and I dare say every bookstore in the country is trying to do something like that. You know, we're all trying to find ways of making this work and making it fun and making it interesting. And that's what we're, that's what we're trying to do. So this past week, you had Byron Lane was your must read TV Thursday night author. And he just wrote a book called The Star is Bored. What was his haiku? Well, now, let me see. <laughs> <laughs> I've, I've got it here somewhere. <laughs> OK, here we go. So Byron's skyku goes as follows. A good book in hand, opposite of quarantine travel anywhere that's lovely isn't that nice yeah a, a book really is the, the opposite of quarantine <laughs> it really is yeah go wherever you want so this week coming up or the next week i guess it would be you have charlotte mcconaughey the australian author and her debut adult fiction book i think certainly in america is called migrations mm -hmm. give us a, a quick precy on that 
So it's an absolutely stunning book. It tells the story of a woman who, well, first of all, it's set in some period. We're not, it's not entirely clear when it is, some point in the, I suspect, not too distant future, when entire species of birds and animals are just dying out. And this woman goes to Greenland to get on a fishing boat with the idea of tracking the last flock of terns as they fly south for the winter. And it's about that. And it's about her. She's an extraordinary character. She's she's very damaged, but incredibly strong and just a really fascinating portrait of, of a young woman very determined and uh, and passionate and i just i just loved it from start to finish it took many twists and turns that um i wasn't expecting and uh it's a really stunning book and you know in the context of an environment that is sort of crumbling before our eyes it just felt very timely as well and she's actually going to be speaking with her editor Carolyn Blakey, who is also my editor, not entirely coincidentally, but those are some of the most interesting conversations when authors speak with editors because they are deep within it. Both of them have lived this book so closely that the level of the conversation is often much more profound because they have both you know, lived it for so long. So that's going to be a wonderful really, really amazing conversation. And then moving forward, we, we just have so many different kinds of books. So the week after we have a thriller by Samantha Downing called He Started It. And then the week after that, on August the 20th, we've got one of the most buzzed about books of the season, which is called Luster by Raven Lilani, which is, again, just a stunningly good book. And it's it's a debut novel. And um it's just, it's funny and sharp and bitter and just amazing. And I loved it. I absolutely loved it. So we're thrilled. We um, we have lots of things. And if you go to the website and click on events, you can see everything that's coming up. And uh, all of these events are free, of course. And uh, you just register and it's a Zoom webinar. Is there a, want of a better word, a pecking order for the digital promotion of books like you know i'm wondering if it parallels the film world where say a film has to premiere at a particular festival and even if your festival comes first the film's going to bypass it because it has to launch at sundance when you're dealing with big releases and big buzz releases is there a pecking order that publishers want authors to abide by like they've got to talk to barnes and noble before they talk to independent booksellers or vice versa how does it work that's really interesting. No, I don't. I don't believe so. And certainly, it's it's all about independent bookstores. That's where almost all of the interesting book events are happening. Uh, that or, or or festivals. Uh, but I don't believe so. I mean, I think one of one of the really interesting things about the move online is that we're seeing a lot more now, as opposed to just an author standing up and giving a presentation about a book, it is a lot more about conversations um, because it's so easy just to have somebody hop on. And again, they may be on the other side of the country and then they can just have a discussion together. For example, I did a very nice conversation when my book came out with Christina Baker Klein, who at the time was in Northern Maine. And we, we, we talked about my book and that was lovely. And Christina's actually coming. Her, her new book is coming out at the end of August. It's called The Exiles. It's a wonderful story about three women leaving England and going to Australia on a boat back in the, uh, in the 19th century. 
so I'm sort of returning the favor and <laughs> I'll be interviewing her. But that kind of thing. Uh, so it's a, it's much more the model that the Unbound Book Festival has always taken of having two authors in conversation with each other. And that's been that's been a really interesting development. Of course, the challenge for us is to find the right interlocutor mm. to do those interviews. I guess it's just really a matter of how much time an author has available. It seems that Whereas in the old days, it was maybe the publisher that set the promotional schedule that really it's up to the author to sell their book more these days. So the more interviews you can cram into your day, the more chances you have of selling the book and making your publisher happy so that they want to work with you next time you put a book out. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that's right. But it's so much easier because, you know, without having the hassle of all of the travel, you know, you can just sit at your desk and do interview after interview. I, there was one time, I think it was for my last book, I did what's called a radio tour. And I had an entire day blocked off in 15 minute increments of doing interviews um, from the sort of East Coast drive time to West Coast evening shows. And um, by the end of the day, I, you know, they were asking me questions. I didn't even know my own name. I'd say <laughs> <laughs> I've done it so often. But the technology is there and it is and it needs to be regarded as a resource. And, yeah, it's it's an ability to just to reach many more people. And, and you know, we should all be grateful for that. It's never going to be the same as having that intimate contact and sort of being able to look somebody in the eyes you read or answer a particular question when someone stood up and raised their hand. But, you know, in the absence of that, this feels like the next best thing. It does. Well, that's exciting. So they're going to be mostly Thursday evenings. Uh -huh. Must read TV at Skylark, but not necessarily. But everything is on the events page of the Skylark website. Do you have the whole list of all the authors that are coming? Yes, they are all there. Yeah. And it goes down to the end of September. Marvellous. It's a lot. Well, thank you so much for keeping us all so engaged and for still selling us books, even despite the fact that your doors are closed. I've come and knocked on the door several times. I had the paper bag handed out to me. <laughs> yeah, we're making it work. <laughs> Alex, thank you so much for chatting. I'll speak to you soon. Thanks, Diana. And from bookshelves and author chats, we're off to the world of theatre next to catch up with Girl Rilla theatre founder Meg Phillips-Crespi. Good morning, Meg. It is lovely to be chatting with you again. It does feel like forever since we last shared an audio space. <laughs> it does. It's odd to think about being in that little room right now. I know. And now, of course, I haven't been in that little room for, gosh, five months. I think it was the beginning of March was the last live show in the studio that I did. And so now everything is done remotely. But, you know, there's all these amazing apps out there. So I feel like, you know, you're kind of still whispering in my ear. But without the germs. <laughs> so we can just imagine the, the audio space that we're in. All right, I'll close my eyes and I can envision the KOPN uh, space. It can be nicer. Maybe we could have a little stage in front of us. There can be artworks all around Ooh. us. It can be anything we want it to be. Can we have some magic mic in there somehow? <laughs> we can have a poster maybe. Maybe they could just be a video playing quietly, like silently in the background, just with the images. <laughs> I'm up for that. <laughs> so let me start by asking you how you have navigated the past five months and whether it's been a period of artistic growth or artistic drought. Well, first of all, I can't believe it's been five months. I guess I hadn't, you know, done the math and time has no meaning during the pandemic. It's gone very slowly. Feels like five years, but also, you know, also fast in some ways. Um, yeah, I was 
Captain Fun Home at Talking Horse and had put in a lot of work both, you know, for the part and also my character played the piano. So I had learned a really difficult piano piece for any of the musicians out there. It was in six flats, which is crazy. <laughs> um, and that got canceled. And that was really that was an artistic loss. And I'm still really sad about that. It's hopefully on for next April. But, you know, we'll see. But I, I feel like it was the very last activity, public activity before COVID, because it was when people around the nation were starting to shut things down, but people weren't sure, do we need to do that? And so we had um, Strange New Worlds, which is an event that I do with some other creators here in Columbia, where we put on some new works. And so we had that, like, basically the last day before everything shut down. So it was kind of nice to go out at least on a little artistic bang. Have you found that your muse has been absent over these past few months or have you found yourself wanting to create? I have not particularly wanted to create, at least in terms of writing. I have done a lot of crafting, like sewing. So I think the muse is always like, do something, do something. (laughs) So it just takes different forms sometimes. So you are now back in the driver's seat with Girl Rilla Theatre. You have something coming up later this month. Before we get into that particular event, just explain what Girl Rilla Theatre is. Well, having been involved in theatre and particularly community theatre for, I'm aging myself, but 40 years... Surely not. You're only 29. (laughs) Surely not. Surely not. Um, I have long been familiar with the fact that there are always a bunch of ladies trying out for like one, two, maybe three parts. And then there's like two guys trying out for 18 parts. And it is just not fair in so many ways. Also, the women's parts tend to not be as good, as juicy. They tend to be one dimensional. And so in 2019, I got the idea to do a series called Girl Rilla Theater, where basically female identifying performers play all of the parts. I wasn't sure if it was going to happen again this year and uh, finally decided we're just going to do it all online. Was there one particular conversation that sparked your desire to make change happen? Or was it just a slow burn over a long time? I think it was just a slow burn over a long time. This actually was a recent realization that I had. I was listening to the soundtrack to The Music Man, which is one of my favorite shows. And, you know, I've always known that there's, you know, the numbers are not good for women. But then it occurred to me, you know, I have seen people play Harry, Harold Hill, you know, from age you can, you can play it from age 30 to 60 easily, 30 years that you can do that. And marrying the librarian, you've got maybe 10, 12 years. And so in addition to inequity in numbers, it's, you know, you can, you can be Harold Hill for so much longer and you don't have to necessarily even look a certain way or it's just so limiting for ladies and I just get tired of it. So in the plays that you choose to adapt for the girl Rilla season, what are you looking for? I'm looking for something that will be entertaining for the audience, but also just has interesting parts, both for men and for women. When I first conceived of it, I was looking at what was on Broadway currently and how many men and how many women were in it. And there was a play, I'm blanking out on what the play was, but basically it had like 
14 men and three women, and the three women were all referred to by some synonym for a prostitute. And if I found any plays like that that I would want to put on, I, you know, even considered having those parts be played by men. You know, I don't want to have ladies be playing uninteresting one-dimensional parts. So that limits the number of plays even more. Yes, it does. (laughs) (laughs) There are not a lot of great women's roles out there. Um, But interestingly, one of the shows that we're going to do this season, Pygmalion, which is what My Fair Lady is based on, Mm. the women's parts in that are pretty good. You know, you look at My Fair Lady and you've got Eliza, who is a a good part, but this is like the one good part. But um, the straight play that it was based on had several good women's parts. So, so that's exciting. And I'm, I'm looking forward to presenting that because it, uh, it has, I think, more to say about, for example, class and expectations and um, then, then people know from My Fair Lady. Do the plays generally, are they generally comedies? I try to do a balance of comedy and drama. So this year we've got three performances scheduled and one's a one act so I've got one comedy and one drama there and then I've got Pygmalion which is a comedy and then I've got an original drama by Katie Hayes so it's exactly half and half this year. So the first one you're doing is called Overruled. Yes Overruled and Strumento those are the two one act. And so tell us is that that's but that's one event that's it's two plays one evening. That's one event correct. Okay tell us about those two plays. Well first of all I don't want anybody to worry. They're both short, so it's not going to be a super long (laughs) evening. They're one act. (laughs) Yes. Uh, So Overruled was written by George Bernard Shaw in, I think it was 1912. And it focuses on two couples, both of whom are really interested in the other's spouse. So it's kind of a, a very early look at polyamory. And it's very witty and funny. And then Strumento is by Claudia Burnett. And Strumento is the Italian word for instrument. And it is based on a historical figure, Eusapia, and I forgot her last name, but she was a, a spiritualist from the early 19th, early 20th century. And it's based on a New York Times article that was written about her. And why did you choose these two plays? So this year I decided to open up the submission process for people to suggest things that they might want to direct or be in or just thought were fun. And both of those came to me through the submission process. And I just thought they were kind of a fun fit together. And also I enjoyed them both for their own sake. Had you seen either of them before or heard of them? I I didn't know Overruled by George Bernard Shaw. I did not either. Um, It was submitted to me by Sarah Jost, who's an actress in the local community. And I'm not sure where she came across it, but I'm so glad she did. I really, really like it. I just finished recently editing it down for length uh, just because it's harder to watch things on Zoom. So I wanted to make sure it moves along briskly. And then Strumento. So last year, we also did two one acts, an evening of two one acts, Trifles by Susan Glaspell. And then we did a play called He Killed My Bird, which was by Claudia Burnett, who wrote Strumento. Those two plays kind of had a tie together. And Claudia saw that I was accepting submissions this year. And she said, hey, I've got this new one act. Okay. So talk to me a little bit about adapting a play. Obviously, you can only adapt plays that are in the public domain. Correct. And also then you don't, public domain plays, you're not 
paying a, a fee to produce them. But when you're adapting them, what is your process? Are you taking whole scenes out? Are you cutting just kind of parts of conversation out? I mean, presumably the original playwright has edited their show so that there's a flow to the story and everything that's in it is there for a reason. Right. When you're adapting it and shortening it, what are the rules you adapt by? I don't have rules per se, but I don't tend to look at structure as much because I do trust that the playwright has has created a good structure. I more just go through line by line and the things that tend to be in public domain were written at a time when sometimes the language wasn't as easy to understand. And so I, my main thing is, can people understand what is being said? And I am not a Shakespeare purist, for example. I, if, if there's a word that I don't know, I just put in a different word. I don't worry about iambic pentameter. I know I feel like my college professors, like, <laughs> pro- well, probably not in her grave, but if she were, she would be rolling. It's just... Is it understandable? Is it enjoyable for the audience? My my first thought really is to make an entertaining piece. Would you add conversation into a piece? If you had taken a whole section out, um, but you needed to have a bridge to make it make sense, are you pro-adding to a play? Uh, yeah, I would, I would do a line or two here and there. For example, I did Lysistrata and I added a line about mansplaining. (laughs) 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 I mean, it was just written so long ago and for a different culture. And so I think it is a great story, but there's ties to what's happening today. And it's, I, I think, a waste not to put them in if you can. Both your seasons have been sponsored by the MU Division of Inclusion, Diversity and Equity. And so, you know, tying into, yes, the, the time that we're living in now, when you look at the public domain, it is rather pale, to say the least. And it would be great to see works by black playwrights whether they're American or British or from around the world. But there's not a huge amount in the public domain. Have you done any research on that maybe for a future season? I actually have a rant about the public domain. Do you? Oh, go for it. Would you like to hear it or do you want me yes, to? Yes, I'd love to hear it. Well, so we actually just got done with like a, tw- it was either 20 or 25 years, I think 20 year drought where nothing came into the public domain. And it's because 20 years ago, Mickey Mouse was about to become a public domain figure and the Walt Disney Company went to battle and the laws got changed. And so for 20 years, nothing has come into the public domain. And so if that hadn't happened, we would be having so many more, you know, 20th 20th century works that would be available. Public domain is what, 70 years? It's a little complicated because now sometimes it's 70 years, but then it depends. But sometimes it's the death of the author. So I'm not for sure, but... For sure, anything that was written in 1923 or before is public domain. I think it's 23, might be 22. I was just doing a quick Google search, which did not not yield many results for black playwrights in the public domain. But there were a couple of, of, of short plays that came up, one by Zora Neale Hurston called Poker. Oh. That's from 1931. It's, it's described as a very short play that takes place in a dingy front room of a shotgun house in New York. And the play centers on a host of characters playing poker and talking a bunch of smack. 
is how it was described. <laughs> Sounds really entertaining. <laughs> there is a playwright called Angelina Welt Grimke who wrote a play called Rachel that was published in 1920 about a young woman who is so horrified by racism that she vows never to bring children into the world. So there definitely are oh. plays out there um but they are few and far between but you know i think like so many i'm i'm curious to see a different side of the american story that was one reason i was really happy last year to offer trifles by susan glassville she you know obviously was a woman playwright and i i reached out to cheryl black who is a professor she's retired now of theater at mu and she specializes in women playwrights of the early 20th century. And so she had suggested that one to me. But she was a white woman, not a black woman. There are so many inequities that need resolving right now. And one that you've been focusing on, of course, is the, is the paucity of roles for women and paucity of roles with meaningful dialogue by women. Yes. Do you apply the Bechtel test to the plays that you produce, which is it has to be... Two women <laughs> who talk to each other about something other than a man. Right. Um, <laughs> it's a low bar and surprisingly <laughs> few movies meet it nonetheless. But because all of the play, all of the roles are going to be played by women, I don't apply that. I, I do try to make sure that there's no roles that are just sort of thankless. Every once in a while you get, you do get a thankless role in a, in a Shakespeare play, for example. Um, but, but I really try to make, make it an enjoyable experience for all of the actors too. So Overruled Stramento is coming up. What are the dates that people need to remember for that production? So that is going to be on, I think it'll be YouTube on the 29th of August, which is a Saturday. Okay. So it's not a Zoom thing. You're going to pre-record it and put it on YouTube. That's my hope. I am still working out the technology, but, um, that's that's the hope. And are the actors each acting remotely? Yes. Yes. So we're having auditions on August 16th. And I I made a Facebook invite in addition to the what's on the website. And I invited all the lady actors that I know. And then I realized I could invite out-of-town actors as well. So I'm, I'm going to be curious to see if it's all local or if we get some, some broader folks. So how are you recording it? Does everybody just record their part at home and then send it to you and you you edit it all together or are you recording it as a zoom event yes the latter i'm not sure that it'll be zoom there's another platform we're looking at and still figuring that out but yes so everybody will be on the screen and my hope is to rehearse monday tuesday wednesday thursday record it on friday and then post it on saturday and it's the same as it was when it was live they're kind of dramatic readings they're not learning the whole play in four days Correct. That would be asking a bit much. <laughs> well, Meg Phillips-Crespi, thank you so much. Uh, we will look out for Overruled slash Stramento coming up at the end of August. Good luck with all of the technical challenges. Uh, thank you. Thank you. And may I um, correct just a, a something real fast? Yes. So you said that um, the season was sponsored by Inclusion, Diversity and Equity, but it's actually in partnership with two entities. One is MU Women's and Gender Studies. And then the other is Talking Horse Productions, who is providing a little bit of funds for the project. And then hopefully we'll make up with donations. 
great. Those were those were good corrections. <laughs> thank you for that. Sure, sure. <laughs> All right, Meg. Thank you so much. Always a joy chatting with you. And hopefully, you I'll um, maybe see you soon in reality. You never know. Oh, let's hope. <laughs> let's hope. Bye. Bye. Sometimes on the show, I have chats with people that are so delightful, it seems a shame to hear them only once. So for our third and final stop today, I'm going to take you back to a chat I had a few weeks ago with the diversely talented Mr. Richard Harris. Good morning, Richard Harris. Hello, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) Well, welcome back to the show. I know that today you are here to talk about the Columbia Griot Society. And if we have time, I'd also like to touch on the famous black playwright August Wilson's seminal manifesto from 1996 entitled The Ground on Which I Stand. Of course. Okay. But before all of that, can we just spend a moment heralding your incredible grandmother, the unstoppable Opal Lee of Texas, the (laughs) loudest voice behind the calls for Juneteenth to be recognized as a national day of celebration, and no less than P. Diddy's new bestie. So how is it living (laughs) (laughs) how is it living in Opal's long shadow? Well, of course, you're never gonna get out from under that shadow, but you know, it's actually I like it. It's cool. You know, the breezes, <laughs> the breezes come in and you don't have that sun right on top of you. So the shadow is really nice. And I've been living in it all my life. And uh, she's been a, an advocate for Juneteenth all of my life. Of course, most of her life. But uh, it's something that is a long time coming. And I'm just so happy. I'm just so glad that everybody's catching up to her because she's been an advocate for this thing for as long as I've known life. So I am so proud of her and I'm so happy for her. It brings tears to my eyes that everybody else is waking up to the fact that this thing needs to be recognized nationally as a holiday because it is definitely the time, the moment that there was no slavery in this country. When that general jumped off that ship and said, hey, what are y'all doing? Why y'all still have them out in those fields? Why haven't y'all let them go yet? What is this about? What are y'all doing in Texas? What is this? Are y'all still trying to make money off of these people because they can't recognize that something is going on in this world because they are treated as second class citizens and they don't know any better? Let those people go. Mm-hmm. And that means a lot. That means a terrible lot. There's still a long way to go. Of course it is. But I mean, you know, you have to start somewhere. You have to first free people from the shackles and you have to free yourself from that sin, from that, that guilt. Mm. You know, you have to free yourself to move forward, to have progress in this country, especially if you say it's the land of the free and the home of the brave. So I am so happy for this country. I'm so happy that it was so many other people outside of African-Americans that actually picked up the torch and picked up the, the pitchforks or whatever they picked up and said, Hey, 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 Enough is enough. Mm-hmm. Enough is enough. Let's move on. Can we please? We have short attention spans these days. So I, I hope that we can maintain the fire and the momentum. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, I do love watching Opal chat to P. Diddy on video. And she's just like super <laughs> chill about it. And it's like, this is, this is P. Diddy you're talking to. It's just beautiful to watch. <laughs> Most definitely. When we talk, you know, we have – 
I have this um, Zoom thing that I do with her every other week on Sundays with where the family gets an opportunity to check in on her. She's much dear to most of us. And so we get an opportunity to check in on her on Sundays. And this Sunday, we, we checked in on her because she had done the two and a half miles of walking. And, you know, she's 93 years old. So and the COVID thing is going on and she doesn't know how to social distance from anyone. And so we checked in on her and she told me, she said, now I was talking to the puffy, diddy, pity, bitty. I was like, mom, just be <laughs> quiet. <laughs> you know, you were speaking to someone that helped you gain a million signatures on a petition that's all you need to know he had that kind of pull she's adorable yeah yeah so so the columbia griot society tell me what it is and how it came about okay i'll i I, let me see where should i start first (laughs) of all i started a griot society in los angeles while i was there in noho which is north hollywood where I actually went to school at a school called Actors Workout Studio. And I started this group because I saw that there were a host of African-Americans that were standing on the outside looking in, like myself, standing on the outside looking in at different plays, different, uh, let me see, how can you put it? Um, Just the door was just kind of cracked open for him, but not actually open because of the parts that were that were out for auditioning and to do and all of that. And uh, Denzel Washington, this is a long, this is a long story that needs to be short, <laughs> but uh, Denzel Washington getting the, the catalog to do all of August Wilson's A Century Cycle. Mm-hmm. Well, when I found that out, I decided that I was going to open it up to the my community, that we would all become experts at at August Wilson, at The Century Cycle. And the best way to do it is just start a, a rep troop that would take, our focus would be on August Wilson. So it became NoHo Griot Society. Of course, no, a griot meaning... Uh, well, the short meaning for griot is that it's a class of traveling poets, musicians, and storytellers in uh, West Africa. And what they did was they traveled and they did an oral history for kings and queens and noblemen in the tribes of North Africa. So that's where the name griot comes from. So I made it Noho Griot. When I came to Colombia, I saw that there was the same kind of uh, need for African-Americans here that were trying to be creative as far as theater was concerned is to get together and start something together. And I decided that I would bring that and bring it to Como. I mean, rhyming, I tell you, when you're in hip hop, rhyming is pretty cool. (laughs) Well, so anyway, Como Griho, that's how it started. I just decided that I would have a mixer of African-American and all kinds of actors to get together and we would read plays by by diverse people, you know, not just African-Americans, but Asian-Americans and Latinx and all just reading those plays that were available and have a drink and just do it that way. And then the COVID hit and I decided to move it to Zoom. And that's how Como Griot started. Ooh, that was a long drawn out. 
<laughs> so when you and I talked last year, I asked about the possibility of there being a black theatre company in Colombia. Is the Colombia Grio Society a step in that direction? Absolutely. You know, the first thing that I did, well, not the first thing, but what I did at the beginning of this year is took took myself on the road to Kansas City to go to the Black Rep there and took myself to St. Louis to the Black Rep there and introduced myself and told them all that I was standing in Columbia and I would love to network with them and have the opportunity to audition and show you that Columbia, Missouri had a wealth of talent there and that you know, reaching out to them to help me start that repertory theater, an African-American repertory theater here in Columbia. So, of course, that's that's the first stepping stone is starting, uh, starting with this Comogria Society where we could all get together and start reading together and start noticing who's who and see who was available and see who was, you know, interested. Are you happy with the response? You know, of course I am, because there, even though I was hoping that it would be a bigger response, you know, if you if you go to Como Grio right now, you'll see that most of the actors are actually outside of Los Angeles, New York, and Atlanta. But there is this contingency that that are members that are here in in Colombia, and and that's all I needed hmm. was a couple of people, and I have some great talented people that showed up. And so I am more than elated that there are as many that I found here that's willing to uh, do the same work that I do. Well, I wanted to touch on August Wilson's seminal speech that he gave at a conference, a, a theatre communication biennial conference. And it was such an impassioned speech that they had to restructure the whole conference to accommodate the aftermath of what he said. But one of the things he said was black theatre in America is alive. It is vibrant. It is vital. It just isn't funded. Black theatre doesn't share in the economics that would allow it to support its artists and supply them with meaningful avenues to develop their talent. Has much changed over the last 25 years? I think so. And uh, the only reason I say that is not because the patronage is coming from the other places or the same places or the status quo places that other theaters are getting their funding from. But we have patriarchs that that come from the black community. Mm-hmm. Like, for instance, what Denzel Washington is doing, what Spike Lee is doing, what even LeBron James is doing to fund the theaters or to fund the repertory theaters around the country. You know, I, I went to St. Louis African American Black Repertory Theater at the beginning of the year just to see what was going on. And Sterling K. Brown, who is actually from the Repertory Theater there in St. Louis, and he's the guy that's on This Is Us, that black guy, he's actually from St. Louis. And he turned all of his attention to that black repertory. I mean, funding, he's lended his voice. And so I I will say this, that there is a community of successful black people, Beyonce and and Jay-Z and a a host of others that have said, okay, since we can't get Coca-Cola to do this, since we can't get Anheuser-Busch to do this, since we can't get, even though some of those people do stand up, you know, and, and, and give money when they can We'll do it. We'll help our own neighborhoods. We'll help our own community find art and we'll start funding it. And that means a lot that a person will 
turn back and lend a hand from the, you know, turn back to the neighborhood which from which they came and lend a hand. That means a lot. So, yeah, I, I could say, no, we don't get the same amount of money or whatever, but it's up to us. You know, it's up to our own community to turn around and say, yeah, I'm going to do this. You know, it's not all about hip hop music. That's not all the art that we have available. You know, we have jazz. We have Wynton Marsalis doing things that he's doing to uplift that community. And see, I, you, you notice that I am putting everybody under the same umbrella. That's uh, music, dance, and theater. There, It all is art to me. And I'm from that whole community. So, yes, I will say again, I think that, yeah, it's making a move in the right direction. What has been your experience of the local theater community since you came here? Do you think we, we have that passion and drive to make it happen? Oh, my God. I had <laughs> no idea. I had no idea the passion for theater, for, for art that happens in I mean, it was such a wonderful surprise to find out that from music, film, theater, I mean, it is vibrant. And there's like this community of people that are so, so attached to each other and they're so intimate with each other and they're so passionate about the same things. I had to, the first thing I did was got an opportunity to become a board member of Maplewood Barn community theater. I mean, they reached out to me and said, hey, hey, we got a seat for you. Come in here and help us to become a member. I see we see you have a passion. And so, yeah, I was pleasantly surprised by this community's attention that it has on on the arts. It is it is vibrant and it is it is so refreshing. It is, I mean, it makes my heart sing. As a black actor coming here, what grade would you give us? Well, I mean, it's it's kind of nice being the only one. <laughs> <laughs> I do know a few others. <laughs> yeah, I do too. But I mean, there's so many, it's so far and few between that it's like, oh, uh, now who's going to play that part? Oh, we know. It's going to be Richard. <laughs> That's wonderful. You have had some stellar parts since you've been here. <laughs> I'm telling you. I was like, oh, my goodness, I'm trying out for stuff and I'm just making it every time. This is wonderful. <laughs> You're a great actor. So, oh, well, thank you. But I think it has a lot to do with my enthusiasm. You know, it's like, oh, we've been waiting for you to stand here. We have been waiting for you to come and be a part of this thing, because I am telling you, it is not it is not because somebody is trying to exclude you in Colombia, because Colombia is not that place. This is the most diverse place. I'm telling you, it. the last time I spoke to you, I told you it reminded me of Austin, Texas. And Austin, Texas is the one of the most diverse communities you will ever, and Colombia is not far behind. You know, I've, I've walked up on a lot of people with a lot of different outlooks in life and they, everybody is embracing everybody. So when I got here, it was almost like we've been reaching out for somebody like you this whole time. And now you showed up, please be a part of our community. You know that? So that, I mean, come on, can't help but like that. <laughs> well, August Wilson also said, despite the radical shakeup he asked for, he also said, we can meet on the common ground of the American theater. So it sounds like that is the kind of ground that you found here in Colombia. Absolutely. Because, I mean, 
everybody that's ever, I know that's ever been involved in theater knows this one thing about theater. It is definitely the mirror. I mean, it is the mirror. It tells you, I mean, those, the plays, the acting is not necessarily acting. It's just like, it's just showing America a mirror. This is who we are. This is who you are. This is who we are. And that's what theater is. It, it presents America to America. And it, it makes us uh, realize that we're all connected. We're all one people. And that, yeah, we have just like any family, we got some, we got some stuff that's really bad, but we got some stuff that's really good too. And we need to embrace that really good stuff, but you have to know it all to know who you are. Mm. And that's what theater is here. That's what theater is. So if somebody wants to get involved with the Columbia Griot Society, what is the best way to get in touch with you? The very best way is to just go on Facebook and find me or find the Griot and give us a holler. Let us know that you're standing there and my door is wide open. If you have a passion like I have for theater, for acting, for that kind of thing, then the door is going to be open for you in Como Griot. You know, if you have a story to tell, if you want to be a storyteller, if you want to play a part in that, if you want to help the community in that way, then the door is open for you. So just go on Facebook, look up Como Grio Society or look for Richard Eugene Harris Jr. and friend me and let me know in a message. That's what you're trying to do. And I, I promise you that I will turn my attention to you and see and unlock the door and let you in. And then you can play as well. Well, I will put the link on, on the show's Facebook page too, so people can click on that if they want more information. Richard, it is always such a delight to talk to you. Thank you so much. You're so wonderful to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you was you were one of the first people that said, hey, hi, how you doing? Come on in here. Come on in here and have a cup of coffee. Sit down. <laughs> Let's talk about it. <laughs> I remember seeing you on the stage at Talking Course Productions in the play Boy, and you were so, it was a great play. I mean, everybody was awesome in it, but you were very, very mesmerizing. And I thought, who is that? I have to get him on the show. So thank you. It is a friendship that I have very much enjoyed. I'm hopefully longstanding and we can continue to enjoy each other's company. Indeed. Well, Richard, <laughs> thank you so much for being on the show once again. Thanks for having me and have a blessed day. That is it for another week. We do indeed live in interesting times, but for all of us right now, these are the only times we have. So heartfelt thanks to all our arts organizations for their willingness to live this life. All the Speaking of the Arts episodes are available as podcasts, which you can hear at speakingofthearts.transistor.fm, or you can also connect through the KOPN website at kopn.org. Thank you to all my guests today for such a fun hour, and to guitarist Yasmin Williams for allowing me to play her song Restless Heart at the beginning and end of the show. You can find more of her music on Spotify and on her website at yasminwilliamsmusic.com. And finally, thank you so much for listening. I'll be back next week with more peeks behind the arts curtain. Until then, stay arty, Columbia. Columbia.